Shameless Media. This episode of the Shameless Book Club is brought to you by Audible, the home of storytelling. Download the Audible app and start listening today. A good writer can create an entire universe with nothing more than words. But what happens when real life is even more outrageous than a story in a book? Welcome to Stranger Than Fiction, where we investigate the intriguing world of writers and the bizarre reality behind some of the world's most famous stories. I'm your host, Eilish Gilligan. Today, I am joined by Melbourne writer and Shameless Media co-founder, Zara McDonald. Zara, it's our first ever episode. I am so excited to be here for episode number one, Let the History Book Show. <laughs> so Stranger Than Fiction is the monthly series where we recap the most bizarre stories to rock the lit world. Today we're going to be talking about an author named James Fry and his interesting little book, A Million Little Pieces. Have you ever heard of James Fry? So when it comes to James Fry, the only thing I know is that Michelle used to have like a strange interest in the story mm-hmm. and so she would like mention it every so often. But I don't know anything more than there was a controversy there, which is kind of helpful for this sort of series. And it's interesting. But that's it. I'm really glad that you don't know anything because it makes it way more fun. (laughs) Did you know anything before you researched this one? No. Yeah. Okay. And you found it interesting? It's crazy. Okay. (laughs) Nice. So I think we should jump right in. And we're going to start somewhere a little bit perhaps unexpected. We're going to start by talking about Oprah Winfrey and her book club. Did you know that Oprah had a book club? I did know that. Okay, excellent. It was massive. It was huge. So it ran from 1996 to 2011. It was on her talk show and every few months Oprah would choose a book and subsequently an author to highlight and discuss on the show, basically how any book club would work. Viewers were encouraged to read and discuss the book as a community and Oprah would usually interview the featured author on the show. For 15 years... Oprah's book club was a hugely popular segment. 70 books were spotlighted in total. Titles that featured as a pick for the book club skyrocketed to the top of bestseller lists. Can you think of any books that are featured on her book club? No, but I've been thinking that it feels very much like Reese's book club filled the void that Oprah's book club had in that now we know as kind of readers that if Reese Witherspoon's book club picks a book, it skyrockets, it's adapted into something and all of those kinds of things. It feels very much like this is what Oprah did back in the day. A hundred percent. Oprah's seal of approval was extremely powerful. And the crazy thing about Oprah's picks is that they were really quite eclectic and often like very literary. Oh, really? Yeah. I was going to say, were they kind of quirky no. and a bit like random? I actually really respect Oprah for this. She did not ever distill her taste for her audience. For example, in 2004, she picked Anna Karenina, Leo oh, yeah. Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, and it shot to the top of bestseller. How? I didn't know that. <laughs> it's so cool. I love it. So Oprah's book club, it seems, was a lesson in never underestimating your audience. Oprah could have chosen a bunch of beach reads or light, you know, chick lit, which is a phrase that was very of Oprah's time. Yes, of course. But she didn't. She decided to stay true to the books that really spoke to her. And in turn, her audience could tell that she was really passionate about a story and always trusted her to recommend quality reads. However, there was one pick for Oprah's book club that outsold all the others, reaching absolutely astronomical numbers after getting Oprah's tick of approval in September 2005. And that book 
was called A Million Little Pieces. So this one was almost an anomaly in terms of how well it did. It was an anomaly in many ways. Right. One of which being that it outsold all the others. Right. Yeah. So in 2002... 33-year-old American writer James Fry was trying to get publishing houses to care about his first manuscript. He was a little-known screenwriter and an unpublished author at the time, and he'd written his first book called A Million Little Pieces. This book was about his struggles with addiction and the gruelling road to recovery and sobriety in a rehab clinic. Focus word is gruelling. This book is intense. Right. So initially... He pitched a million little pieces to publishers as a novel, as a fictional novel. Inspired by his literary heroes, Ernest Hemingway, Jack Kerouac and Charles Bukowski, Fry wanted the story to function as a narrative heavily inspired by his life. So a novelized version of his life, I think, is important to note. So that's what he pitched it as? Yes. Is that what it became? No. Right. (laughs) Well, actually. Well, (laughs) spoiler. So it became a memoir. It did. Right. But only after it was rejected. Okay. (laughs) So the novelized version of A Million Little Pieces was rejected by 17 publishers. Yeah, it's quite a few. Yeah. According to The Guardian, publishers were really confused. How much of this story was true? How much of it was fiction? They weren't interested in the spot between genres where the first manuscript of A Million Little Pieces sat. Eventually, there was one publisher that was interested in A Million Little Pieces, Doubleday Books, which was a division of Random House, so a pretty big publisher. Yeah. But Doubleday didn't want the novelised version of A Million Little Pieces. They wanted a memoir. So, armed with a reported $50,000 advance from Doubleday, Fry sat to work, heavily editing characters, timelines, and chapters in a million little pieces to transform the story from fiction to factual memoir. Eventually, Fry was left with a raw, harrowing recount, in his own words, of his time in rehab. And in 2003, A Million Little Pieces, the memoir, was published. Was it big before Oprah picked it? It enjoyed moderate success. Like big enough to be on her radar. Yeah. Clearly, but not big enough to have the kind of fame he would later experience. Exactly. Right. So I want to talk about this book. I read it and I, to be completely honest, hated it. I thought it was a rough read. Really? Um, Yes. It was described by The Guardian as brutal, foul-mouthed and utterly compelling. And the book opens with Fry waking up on a plane with serious injuries he has no recollection of having sustained, with no idea of where he's headed or how he got on the plane in the first place. As it turns out, he's an addict destined for a stay in a rehab clinic, which has been organised and paid for by his parents. So when you say you didn't like the book, did you just find it too dark? Did you just not find it well written? Did you have the context of what it became? So you were sceptical? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, we're going to get into this in a little while, but I'll explain later how the context of what this book became actually informs how the book changed over the years. Right, right, right. That makes sense, like republished versions of the book. So going in, if you're reading A Million Little Pieces in 2023, you know the context of the book because it tells you. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. 
The reason I didn't like the book is multifaceted. One, putting aside what's to come in this story, I didn't enjoy the writing style. It's kind of like, have you ever read a poem by Charles Bukowski? I haven't. It's very dark, very like old man. (laughs) (laughs) It's so your style. (laughs) (laughs) Very like no punctuation marks, no grammar, kind of like stream of consciousness vibes. Okay, it takes itself quite seriously. Oh, yeah. Oh, Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm with you right now. I don't think anyone has ever taken themselves more seriously. (laughs) Okay, perfect. I can see it and I can feel it. Yeah. And in this book, Fry describes withdrawing from heroin, cocaine and alcohol all at once and a procedure during which he has several root canals without anesthesia and troubling family therapy sessions with his parents. He writes about his disdain for the 12-step program and his journey to sobriety using nothing but sheer willpower. Oh, so that's what the book became. Rehab didn't work, but willpower did. Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. So you can see why it would be a little bit insufferable. Yeah. Fry also describes an incident that occurred during his adolescence where his good friend Michelle, which is a fake name, is struck and killed by a train, sparking a mental health spiral and a drug and alcohol binge as a 17-year-old. So this is kind of the inciting incident for his addiction issues. Fry also describes his legal troubles due to violent and intense confrontations with police in several different states. He writes about facing several years in jail and the relief of finding out that due to many of his charges being dropped, he only has to serve three months in prison. In summary, the book has big edgelord energy. It's very edgy. It's very bro-y. It's very man. Right. (laughs) Wasn't written for Eilish Gilligan in 2023. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was not. So upon release, A Million Little Pieces sold fairly well and received quite dramatically mixed reviews. Some people hated it, some people loved it, and I think that that's a byproduct of the way that it was written. Poet and author John Dolan thoroughly criticised the book at the time. As he wrote, Fry sums up his entire life in one sentence from page 351 of this 382-page memoir. Quote, I took money from my parents and I spent it on drugs. Given the simplicity and familiarity of the story, you might wonder what Fry does in the other 381 pages. The story itself is simple. He goes to rehab at an expensive private clinic with his parents footing the bill. That's it. 400 pages of hanging around a rehab clinic. It feels longer. It feels like years. For all Fry's childish impersonation of the laconic Hemingway style, this is one of the most heavily padded pieces of prose I've seen since I stopped reading first-year student essays. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, brutal, but I imagine a review that might have aged well. I think so. So do you know who absolutely adored this book? Oprah. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So in September 2005, a couple of years after A Million Little Pieces was published, Oprah Winfrey announced that the memoir was her next pick for Oprah's book club. A Million Little Pieces was actually the first book by a living author that Oprah had picked for book club in more than three years after picking a string of literary classics. So this is an unusual pick for Oprah. Right. Yeah. The pick was a total hit. In an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show titled The Man Who Kept Oprah Awake at Night, Oprah invited Fry onto the show for an interview and hosted his mother as well and held a discussion with her staff and audience about how much the experience of reading A Million Little Pieces had meant to them. Unfortunately, I could not find footage of this episode. I wish I could have, but we do have a few quotes. So Oprah's crying. On this show. Yeah, she's so moved by this book. She described A Million Little Pieces as, quote, like nothing you've ever read before. Everybody at Harpo, just a side note, Harpo is Oprah Winfrey's production company and it's Oprah spelled backwards. I love that fact. (laughs) So good. (laughs) 
everybody at Harpo is reading it. When we were staying up late at night reading it, we'd come in the next morning saying, what page are you on? We all loved the book so much. She added, I couldn't put it down. It's a gut-wrenching memoir that is raw and it's so real. After turning the last page, you want to meet the man who lived to tell this tale. That is not how I felt. (laughs) (laughs) You had like rooted teeth then as well. So mad. (laughs) So A Million Little Pieces quickly outsold every other book that had been featured in Oprah's book club up until that point. It was the number one paperback nonfiction book on the New York Times bestseller list for 15 weeks. Oh, my gosh. And was eventually published in 22 different languages worldwide. But one investigative report was about to tear the entire thing to the ground. On January 4, 2006, about four months after Oprah chose a million little pieces for her book club pick, an investigative news website called The Smoking Gun published a lengthy feature entitled A Million Little Lies. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a very dense report. It's six pages long. So it's like really tiny text. You have to like click the next page, click the next page. It's full on. I'm going to try and sum it up for you. But if you get confused at any point, please let me know. I shall. (laughs) So in the report, they wrote, in an attempt to confirm or disprove James Fry's accounts, we examined matters for which there would be likely a paper trail at courthouses, police departments, or motor vehicle agencies. So they're really Nancy drawing this. The report, which spans six pages of text, read in part, a six-week investigation by the smoking gun reveals that there may be a lot less to love about Fry's runaway hit, which has sold more than 3.5 million copies. Police reports, court records, interviews with law enforcement personnel and other sources have put the lie to many key sections of Fry's book. The 36-year-old author, these documents and interviews show, wholly fabricated or wildly embellished details of his purported criminal career, jail terms and status as an outlaw wanted in three states. What, so he was just never a wanted guy, never a criminal? Pretty much. Isn't it? interesting that this was never fact-checked because you would think that it wouldn't be that hard to check the records of someone who is purporting to have broken the law in lots of different ways. That's the crazy thing. As I research more and more of these Stranger Than Fictions, I'm finding that the fact-checking process in publishing is kind of like everyone thinks it's somebody else's responsibility. Yeah. And authors are like, well, editors should be fact-checking and editors are like, well, authors should be fact-checking. And it's like, yeah, well, it's so interesting to me that a publication like The New Yorker would have like the most stringent fact-checking in the whole world, but a publisher Mm. who's asking authors to kind of write stuff that we consider to be fact, Mm -hmm. that no one's asking questions often. Mm -hmm. Even my own experience writing books, no one asking me if my experiences are real. It's crazy, particularly considering that this book was transformed from a fictionalized manuscript. Yeah, 100%. You would think that somebody would be like, hey, maybe we should check that some of these facts are actually real. <laughs> yeah, or is there a reason he wanted this to be fiction so bad? Exactly. Maybe the $50,000 advance perhaps has something to do with it. But yeah. We'll see. So what are the major revelations included in this report? So we're going to pretty much go through the major events in A Million Little Pieces and what the smoking gun had to say about them. Cool. Okay. So in the book, Fry claimed that as an 18-year-old in Michigan, he was an outcast that blew 0.36 in his first DUI, which set a county record. 
He then claimed, was he trying to flex about this in the book? That's what it reads as yeah, to right. me. Like the, the setting a county record. Oh. Anyway, okay, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm on this train. I can't with the county record. It's like, number one, how would you even know that? They're not going to tell you that. Number two, like. If it is true, how are you not deeply ashamed of that? Exactly. Yeah. He then claims he spent a week in jail for the crime. The smoking gun revealed that police documents prove he actually blew between 0.21 and 0.20. He did not send a county record and he did not spend a week in jail and instead paid a $305 fine. Right. <laughs> Quite different. Slightly. To a week in jail. Yes, slightly different. So, our second claim. Fry claimed to have been arrested several times during his college years in Ohio. The smoking gun could only find evidence of one arrest for an incident in 1992, which is described in the book. According to Fry, on the evening of this arrest, he had attempted to reconcile with his ex-girlfriend who wasn't interested, so he, quote, went out and drank as much as he could and smoked as much crack as he could, and when he was good and loaded, he decided to go and find her and talk to her again. Fry then describes an incident in which he drove under the influence to a bar where his ex-girlfriend was, mounted the sidewalk with his car, and hit a police officer. He then <laughs> what? <laughs> what? He then described driving under the influence of alcohol and crack, ridiculing and abusing the police, trying to beat them up, being dragged away, kicking and screaming, and spending the night in jail. So that's- your tone right now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's essentially that's the tone in which he wrote. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. In A Million Little Pieces, Fry wrote that after this incident, he was charged with, quote, assault with a deadly weapon, assaulting an officer of the law, felony DUI, disturbing the peace, resisting arrest, driving without a license, driving without insurance, attempted incitement of a riot, possession of a narcotic with intent to distribute, and felony mayhem. In A Million Little Pieces, Fry described finding out in rehab that he faced, quote, three years in prison, $15,000 in fines, and served 1,000 hours of community service for the incident. Surprisingly, while Fry is still in rehab, the Ohio prosecutor encountered some problems with missing evidence and had decided to change course with the sentence. Yeah, so he was randomly just like not up for three years anymore. Yeah. Yeah, right. Basically, they were just like, oh, actually, we take it back. So here's what actually happened. After several dead ends, Sergeant Dave Dudgeon of the Granville Police Department in Ohio finally found the corresponding police record of this incident for the smoking gun, and it was significantly different to Fry's account in a million little pieces. So the report notes that Fry attempted to park his car in a no parking zone instead of driving up on the sidewalk, and in doing so, his front right tyre rolled slightly up onto the curb when he was approached by an on-foot police officer who intended to tell him that he couldn't park in that spot the officer noticed that fry appeared drunk he failed a couple of field sobriety tests and was taken by another police officer in a car to the police station a few blocks away after this incident fry was issued with two tickets one for driving under the influence and one for driving without a license. He was also charged with a misdemeanor for driving with an open container of alcohol in the car. He was directed to appear in court in 10 days, after which he was released on a $733 cash bond, meaning his time in custody did not exceed five hours. It's so interesting to me because it's like you're doing these things that are still pretty average. Like in both instances you've explained already, like you're still driving under the influence. Mm -hmm. But for you to think that it's not an edgy enough story that you need to exaggerate it to the nth degree is just so – doesn't make any sense to me. It makes no sense. <laughs> like, who sense. cares? It's also like, who's bragging about Yeah, that's yeah. the thing to me. It's like real big male ego stuff. Mm-hmm. 
So to summarize, there was no hitting a police officer with his car, no kicking and screaming, no abuse or thrown punches, no felony charges. In fact, the charge felony mayhem that Fry included in his account doesn't even exist. And there was no night in jail. It doesn't exist. No, he just made up a charge. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Felony mayhem. Felony mayhem. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) In fact, there really wasn't any jail at all. When confronted about spending three months in jail as punishment for this incident by the smoking gun in an interview for the report, Fry outright admitted that he had fabricated that detail. I was in for a significantly shorter period of time than three months. I got in almost no trouble, if that answers the question. So it gets a little bit muddy here. He says he was up for years in prison in rehab for this incident, right? And then he says in rehab that his sentence has been drastically reduced to three months. Now the smoking gun has found out that that three months actually was not three months. It was significantly shorter than that. So obviously he was still getting in trouble for doing these things, but not close to what he was alleging. He was getting in trouble, but it was more along the lines of like, here's a fine. And he admitted that to the smoking gun to be like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Straight away. Yep. Yeah, I guess when you're faced with facts, what are you meant to do? I just thought a liar would keep lying. And he said, I got in almost no trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at that point, surely everyone's like, well, what else is not true? Exactly. Well, there's more. I'm going to take you through the final revelation after the break. We know how much you all love getting stuck into a good story and there is no better way to be transported to another world than through an audiobook. I've been listening to Audible for quite some time and I love how intimate the experience is of having someone tell you their story. One book that is certainly on my to-be-listened list is The Storyteller by Dave Grohl from The Foo Fighters. Some of the team have already listened to the book and have noted how having his voice in your ears as he speaks about flying across the world and touring in front of thousands of fans allows you to be transported to the stage with him. Audible gives you the ability to listen to your favorite author at any time of the day and it's hands-free. I find that I get through novels so much quicker because I can do it while I'm doing tasks like walking my dog in the morning. If nonfiction is not your thing, then don't worry. Audible has a vast fiction collection in their library. If you're in need of some entertainment whilst doing your daily chores, Audible is the app for you. Download the app to browse their audiobooks, podcasts and Audible originals and start listening today. Thank you so much to Audible for making this episode of The Shameless Book Club possible. The third major revelation involved in this report involved the tragic death of Fry's high school friend slash girlfriend, Michelle. In an interview with The Smoking Gun, James Fry confirmed the real identity of Michelle as Melissa Sanders, a 17-year-old high school student who was tragically hit and killed by a train on November 15, 1986. First, we have to cover how Michelle was portrayed in A Million Little Pieces, and then we have to cover what actually happened. Right. So in the book, Fry explained that he was an outsider and an outcast in high school. He said he was hated by the local kids while Michelle was popular, beautiful and smart. One day, Michelle passed Fry a note in English class that said she didn't think he seemed as awful as I hear you are. He subsequently wrote back, I am as awful as people say and worse. This sounds like a uh, Colleen Hoover book or something. Literally, it sounds like a fan fiction. Yeah. The pair became unlikely friends. 
When a boy asked Michelle on a date, she knew her parents wouldn't let her go, so she lied to her parents and said she was going to the movies with Fry. Michelle's parents drove Fry and Michelle to the movies, where Michelle met up with her date, a football hero, according to Fry, and subsequently parked somewhere and drank beer while Fry watched the movie with a pint of whiskey in hand. Fry recounted that as Michelle and her date were making their way back to the movie theater so Michelle could get picked up, her date tried to beat a train across the tracks and their car was hit. Fry wrote and published in this book, quote, his car got hit and Michelle was killed. She was my only friend. She got hit by a fucking train and killed. So he then claimed that Michelle's parents and her friends blamed him for Michelle's death. In a million little pieces, he wrote, I got blamed by her parents and by her friends and by everyone else in that fucking hellhole. I got taken down to the police station and questioned. That was the way it worked there. Blame the fuck up. Feel sorry for the football hero. (laughs) (laughs) What? Just wait. So the reality of Michelle slash Melissa Sanders' death was extremely different to how Fry described it. So there was a woman who died. Yep. Okay. There was a real woman named Melissa Sanders and privately to the smoking gun, James Fry confirmed that Michelle in his book was Melissa Sanders. Okay. So what happened to Melissa Sanders? There's no evidence to prove that he and Melissa were close friends in any way. On November 15, 1986, Melissa Sanders and her best friend Jane Hall and another friend of hers, Dean Spurlick, attended a party at Dean's house. All three teens were 17 at the time. Melissa and Jane were not drinking, but Dean was. After 8.30pm, Melissa, Jane and Dean got into Dean's car with Dean behind the wheel to attend either another party or purchase some more wine coolers. Witness accounts differed on this. At 9.17pm that night, Dean's car was hit by a train on the passenger side, which very sadly killed both Melissa and Jane almost immediately and left Dean with serious injuries. James Fry and Melissa Sanders did actually attend the same high school, but they were not in the same year level. Fry was not interviewed by the police to report on Melissa Sanders' death, despite several other students being interviewed. None of the other students mentioned Fry or anything about Melissa attending the movies on the evening that she died. Melissa's father, Bill, told the publication, I have never met Mr. Fry and I never drove him anywhere. He didn't know her. This feels so awful to a young girl, well, two young girls, to be honest, who Mm -hmm. lost their lives in a really tragic way. Mm -hmm. For you to kind of take elements of this story as inspiration Mm -hmm. feels just so yuck. Like if that was a family member of mine, you'd be so filthy. The fact that her father literally said, I don't know this guy. I've never met him. Like, I don't even know who he is. Just completely obliterates his version of the story. So the smoking gun also directly referenced Oprah's involvement in James Fry's success as they wrote, when Oprah Winfrey decided to place her book club's coveted seal of approval on a million little pieces, she further cemented James Fry's place near the top of the publishing heap. At least in terms of sales, if not literary achievement, Fry's nonfiction memoir's roaring success has earned him millions of dollars and allowed for the kind of luxuries that few young authors ever see. In the statement on his website, Fry said, This is the latest attempt to discredit me. So let the haters hate, let the doubters <laughs> down. Let the haters hate back in 2005 or six or so. I stand by my book and my life and I won't dignify this bullshit with any sort of further response. So he came out with a statement even though he had confirmed to the smoking gun that some of the things that they had found were true. Mm -hmm. How strange. His confidence is baffling. But then I can't be surprised because what kind of person does this in the first place? 
he he's gotten away with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Book's published. Like the deed is done. You know. So how did Oprah respond to this smoking gun report? Initially, she actually stood by Fry. Right. Yep. She stood by her man. On January 11, 2006, about a week after the smoking gun report went live, James Fry and, weirdly, his mother were interviewed by Larry King on his show Larry King Live on CNN. His mother seems to feature in these interviews. <laughs> I don't know why. King questioned Fry and his mother Lynn extensively about the smoking gun report. Fry and Lynn stuck by the memoir label for a million little pieces, as Fry said. A memoir is a classification of nonfiction. Some people think a memoir is creative nonfiction. It's generally recognised that the writer of a memoir is retelling a subjective story that is one person's event. I mean, I still stand by the essential truths of the book. Essential truths. The essential truths. That's what James Fry said. Yeah. Oprah herself actually called into the show to defend Fry. Wow. Yep. She said, James has had many conversations with my producers who do fully support him and obviously we support the book because we recognize that there have been hundreds of thousands of people whose lives have been changed by this book. She continued, whether or not the car's wheels rolled up on the sidewalk or whether he hit the police officer or didn't hit the police officer is irrelevant to me. What is relevant is that he was a drug addict who spent years in turmoil from the time he was 10 years old, drinking and tormenting himself and his parents. So Larry King Live is essentially like, let's ask you some questions. James yeah. Fry is trying to be like, nah, nah, it's all good. I stand by the essential truth of it all. And Oprah calls in and says, I'm on Team James. Yeah. And I can imagine why you would be in some level of denial about it. If oh. you did, not only did you promote the book, but you felt fundamentally that it changed your life. Totally. That's tough. However, it was just a couple of weeks later when Oprah decided that she thought that James Fry, quote, embellishing his memoir actually was a pretty big deal after all. Right. <laughs> yes. So we don't know exactly what sparked Oprah's dramatic turnaround, but it was dramatic. And accounts at the time report that the public were pretty annoyed by the revelations in the smoking gun feature. And even more annoyed that Oprah didn't seem to care whether or not A Million Little Pieces was factual at all. So the Today Show noted at the time that Oprah's seeming indifference to the memoir's accuracy led to intense criticism from her audience. It seems like Oprah's copping a bit of flack. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things, right, where, of course, we accept the veracity of books at face value. So mm -hmm. I can imagine Oprah picking that book makes a lot of sense. Loving the book makes a lot of sense. But yes, perhaps when she was shown the flaws in the book, mm. all her audience and her fans would ask is for her to say, oops, yeah, that's not good enough. Yeah. That's all she can do, right? And she didn't initially. Exactly. So after her appearance on Larry King Live, during which she defended Fry, it seemed as though Oprah's reputation as someone who could be trusted by her audience had been thrown into question. Ah, dear. Mm-hmm. So she was very eager to set things right. So on January 25, 2006, Oprah had James Fry and his publisher Nantalise on the Oprah Winfrey show to get the truth of the matter. And James wanted to do this? So the crazy thing is James was actually slightly hoodwinked into this interview. Really? Yes. It is my first question, right? It's like why would you willingly walk onto that set if exactly. you know the wrath you're about to get potentially? Mm-hmm. So basically he was told that it was going to be a general conversation about publishing and books and they were very vague on the details of what this conversation was right. going to be. And as soon as she got started, Oprah was. She, got, she went back. Oh, yeah. So on the show, 
Oprah explicitly apologized to her audience for initially supporting Fry. As per the New York Times, quote, in her own way, in her own time, she came to understand that she had been had by Mr. Fry. Thursday, she opened the show by looking directly into the camera and saying, I made a mistake and I left the impression that the truth does not matter. And I am deeply sorry about that because that is not what I believe. But what started as a mere culpa soon turned into j'accuse. <laughs> Both Mr. Fry and Miss Talise were snapped in two like dry winter twigs. Wow. Yeah. What a review. And I really, really wish I had footage of this show, but it has been wiped. wiped? I cannot yeah. find it anywhere. So Oprah was wearing this like plain gray pantsuit. So she kind of looks like a lawyer, like very serious right down to the wardrobe choices. And she sat across from James Fry on the show's couch looking at him seriously. She told Fry that she felt duped. She said, I feel that you betrayed millions of readers. She didn't hold back. She asked question after question of Fry, interrogating him on everything from whether or not he really had root canal surgery without painkillers to whether or not he feels as though he duped his readers to whether or not he feels as though he should put a disclaimer in the book. Wow. So for his part, Fry actually stuck to his story that he had written a memoir, the core of the book was true, and the rest were embellishments added to help the story make more sense. A little sparkle. Yeah, just a little bit of, you know. Oprah particularly fixated on the character of Lily, who in the book is a former sex worker and addict that Fry fell in love with during his stay in rehab. And at the end of the book, she very sadly died by suicide. This book has everything it has the high school sweetheart that died it has addiction it has root canal surgery the new love that dies yeah the new love that dies so fry insisted to oprah that lily did actually exist however a couple of days later the podcast freakonomics perhaps attempting their own smoking gun report published a statement on their blog that claimed that no record of lily's death actually exists oh my goodness yep So now we don't know if she was real or not. At that point, why don't you just – I mean, maybe if he was hoodwinked to go on the show, he wasn't prepared to just say the truth and the whole truth. But by that point, like digging your heels in is just going to end in disaster because people are going to dig into this now. Yeah. They're motivated to. How do you – but how do you change tact though? Like if your party line is – Yeah, I know. I don't know. But it's embellished. Like – yeah. It's hard. You just wouldn't do it in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, well, exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) And then Oprah turned her criticisms and questions on to Fry's publisher, Nan Talese, asking her how she could have ever believed Fry's story in the first place, which, to be fair, Oprah believed it. Well, yeah, a lot of of people believed (laughs) it. As if this wasn't enough, the brutal episode continued as Oprah brought out several experts to weigh in on the situation. So this panel of experts included journalists from the New York Times and the Washington Post oh my God. and a scholar from the Pointer Institute who all joined the conversation to condemn what Fry had done and in turn his publisher had done. It's to like, their faces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's like parading all these experts. <laughs> Power to Oprah. <laughs> I know. So Oprah didn't go so far as to rescind her official recommendation of a million little pieces originally made for Oprah's book club. But in terms of annihilating Fry's reputation in order to save her own, well, the job was thoroughly done. Yeah. As we said, she made a mistake at the start by standing by him. But if you're going to pivot, she pivoted well. Oh, she pivoted. Yeah. (laughs) 
So after this doomed interview with Oprah, James Fry understandably lay low for several months in an attempt to let the furor die down. In September 2006, Fry gave his first interview since the Oprah confrontation to The Guardian. In it, he discussed the ramifications he faced in light of the controversy. He said, My agent just called me and said she couldn't work with me anymore because she felt her integrity was being questioned. My publisher called and said that they were cancelling my contract simply because they didn't want to honour it. I mean, that's sort of the irony, you know. My agent said her integrity was questioned, but it wasn't questioned enough for her to stop taking the money. Hmm, I don't know about that. Yeah. Fry also described what his life was like after the smoking gun report went live. It's been a very surreal six months, very strange, sometimes terrible, slightly overwhelming. It's been like living in a Camus book or a Kafka book or something. We had reporters camped out at the front and back entrances of our building. For a while, I couldn't leave the apartment at all. And then when I could leave, I left with a bodyguard and had to get directly into the back of a black SUV. Does it sound to you, at least having read these quotes and read these interviews, that there may have been some part of him that loved the notoriety or is that unfair it's hard because i find my own personal dislike of this guy clouding my judgment yeah but i mean that would be objectively tough not being able to leave your apartment <laughs> but you also did do the thing yeah so in this feature for the guardian the writer laura barton also noted that a million little pieces was now published with a note to the reader at the beginning and this is the note that i was talking about the right. context that of you now course. get So, quote, in it, Fry apologizes to any reader who has been, quote, disappointed by my actions and says, my mistake, and it is one I deeply regret, is writing about the person I created in my mind to help me cope and not the person who went through the experience. Like, we still have no sense what is actually true and what is not. He's He's just like, I created a character. Mm Mm-hmm. But I still went through things. He's giving no specificity. Yeah, like if you could surely back up parts of it, this is what I would do. I would say, <laughs> here are the here are the receipts for the parts that are true. Yep. The rest is not. Yeah. That's just what I would do. And this note says to me, none of it's true. Yeah, so, okay. In an unprecedented move, Doubleday, the publisher of A Million Little Pieces, actually offered a refund to anyone who felt defrauded by the Wow, book. that's huge. It's massive. So in 2011, a few years later, the last year that Oprah Winfrey show was on air, Oprah made a stunning turnaround. What? Yep. By inviting James Fry back on the show for an interview. (laughs) Apparently over the years, poor Oprah had received criticism for how tough she'd been on James Fry back in 2006. Oh my goodness. Yeah. After the smoking gun report. Finally, Oprah said she listened to these critics. I actually think this is so unfair. It's like she got backlash because she supported the book in the first place and then she rescinded the book in like the most public way possible. And then she got backlash. And then she got backlash. For being too harsh. For being too mean. Yeah, yeah. It's like, come on. For his part, Fry seemed appreciative of the gesture to have him back on the show. He said, I thought it was big of you and I thought it was cool. If anything, I should offer the apology to you. (laughs) No shit. Yeah. (laughs) This mess was my mess, you know. You've done nothing but be really generous and cool with me. Again, very true. (laughs) And whatever happened on that second show after the smoking gun report happened because I created that situation. If anything, you deserve the apology more than I deserve one. Yes, that is so true. (laughs) Like, yes. (laughs) When Oprah asked if he could go back, would he go back and change things? Fry said, I don't know if I would because my life would probably be different. I know I made bad mistakes. 
I know I was wrong. But now I'm really rich. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what you've got to do sometimes to learn how to be right. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And you gave me a great gift the first time you had me on the show. In a way, you did the second time too, even though it hurt. It's like, (laughs) that's nice for you then, I guess. So you might be wondering whatever happened to James Fry. I am wondering that right now. I bet. Was his career ruined by these damning revelations? Don't tell me. No. Really? (laughs) No. How does one rebuild? Like a phoenix from the ashes. I mean, the thing is, there was never any ashes. He was fine the whole time. Like He never really told us what was true, what was not, and he was never properly cancelled. The book book was made into a movie. Not a very successful one, but it still was. And he continued to write books and publish them. Fiction books. Well, the funny thing is he actually wrote a follow-up quote-unquote memoir to A Million Little Pieces that focuses on one of the characters that he met in rehab and their relationship after rehab. Is it true? Don't know. Okay. So it's – it's and, it, and he wrote it and someone bought it. Yeah. Well, like when I say someone bought it, a publisher yeah. bought the rights. Yeah, yeah. It's out there. So he's still writing. Yeah. Oh. He's still writing and <laughs> – I also wanted to very briefly touch upon another controversy that James Fry had just at the end of this episode. In 2009, he formed a company called Full Fathom 5, which is a young adult novel publishing company that aimed to emulate the success of the Twilight series. Right. In 2010, even more controversy was stirred up when a college student who had been in talks to join Full Fathom 5 released details of the proposed contract online exposing the minimal payment and credit that the writers at the company were receiving for their work. In fact, the advance for a manuscript was allegedly a measly $250 and the contract allowed Fry to remove an author from a project at any given time. (laughs) So Far out. Yeah. So he's still, you know, rustling up a little bit of controversy, but I do feel that that is perhaps another Stranger in the Fiction episode for another time. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) So that is a wrap. Wow. I am actually really surprised that he still had a career writing books. I am. The world constantly (laughs) surprises me about how easy it is for men. Yeah. I still, I I shouldn't be surprised at nearly 30, but I am. I feel disappointed because I feel like the person who received the most criticism and the most backlash was Oprah. Was Oprah. Oh my goodness. What a story. Thank you for bringing it to us. Thank you so much for being here, Zara. I appreciate it so much. And you can follow The Shameless Book Club on Instagram and TikTok at The Shameless Book Club. And do not forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Bye. Goodbye. Thanks again. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. 
there is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.